it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. We have session number 19 today. Today I have myself, Dave Ahern, and we also have Andrew Sather with us today. And today we're going to do a little bit of a different format. We have some great reader questions that we're going to answer today. So Andrew and I are going to take turns answering those questions with each other. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read the first question, and Andrew's going to take a stab at answering it, all right? So first we have a question from Jameson. And he said, I have just begun receiving your newsletters to the May 31st and June 1st editions of the first I have read and would like to follow along with your portfolio. That being said, I am starting with 4000 in my account, traditional IRA, and would like to buy the latest dividend fortress that you recommended. How many shares do you buy each time you recommend a stock or how much or what percentage do you normally buy? Any insight would be much appreciated. All right, Andrew, what are your thoughts on that question? Well, you know, obviously, can't give any sort of personalized advice legally, but let's just say as if I were to put myself in Jameson's shoes and what I would do with kind of a larger sum. So, you know, the portfolio obviously follows $150 a month, and that's every single month. It's a dollar cost averaging. So what that means when buying a recommended stock from the e-letter is that, you're going to buy up to $150 worth of whatever stock that is. So sometimes a stock will trade around $20, be able to pick up, you know, six, seven shares. Sometimes the stock trades at like $110. I'm only able to pick up one share. So with that extra money, you know, if I'm picking up one share at $100, I have 50, 45 after a transaction fee. 
I'll just roll that over to the next month. So the next month I'll have $200 and I can buy however many, the maximum amount of shares I can and just keep going in that way. So obviously you don't get this sort of perfect position size where every position is a perfect 5% or 7% or 3% of the portfolio. That's just the nature of the beast, and this is something that happens when you're running a real portfolio with lower amounts and trying to trying to basically, in contrast to like a fund manager who's managing millions or billions of dollars, and then we have the average person who maybe listens to this podcast. They don't. They have different things that they need to worry about, and so that's kind of one of the way, one of the reasons why they either. One of the reasons why the e-leather is structured like it is because it helps helps you put yourself into the shoes of actually people who are average with average incomes and putting their hard-earned money into the market. So I guess the second part of that question is when you start with a larger sum, say $4,000, and you know, do you put that all in at once with the one recommendation or do you split it up? I mean, it's obviously all a personal preference type of thing. The way I kind of want to look at it, and it's, again, going to be different for everybody, but the the number, the dollar amount doesn't really matter so much. What matters is how much are you going to be dollar cost averaging in the future? So, you know, if you're starting with 4000 but you're going to be putting in 4000 a month every single month, well, it doesn't really make any sense to split that 4000 up because $4,000 is really just, it just represents one position size. Then again, you know, if you're only doing $150 a month as a dollar cost averaging and you have 4000 well, you know, you don't want to put that all in in the last recommendation because now your portfolio is going to be 95% the June recommendation and then you know the next month you're going to have this tiny amount for the next recommendation. So you you want to find a nice balance. The 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 thing I I actually responded to Jameson um as he was a e-leather subscriber and I, I thought this would be a great opportunity because other people might have this kind of question and it's a good thing to really try to understand is what's I guess discussed in the investment community about portfolio management and how it actually applies in real life. There's kind of a disconnect and it's not really talked about much because on one side you have diversification. The easy answer is you just diversify into 15 or 20 positions. You have a 5%, you know, somewhere between three to 7% position size. And that's kind of like the, and then you just set it and forget it and you, you, you watch that basket. That's kind of like the advice and that's really to the extent of where it goes. But when you're looking in reality, you know, people have people who are being smart about it and really practicing the, the, the basic fundamentals of investing as they should. Diversification is obviously one, but dollar cost averaging is the second big one that's it's again, it's one of those things like eat your vegetables. It's told that you should do it, but there's not much mastery behind an explanation behind how to necessarily navigate that. And so it makes it kind of 
you'll you'll get questions like this that Jameson's getting, and I foresee more questions in the future. So if I can answer those now, I think that that's very helpful. If you're dollar cost averaging, the way that that works is. You know, the definition of dollar cost averaging is you're putting the same amount of money into your account every single month. Think of it this way. So the first year, if you're putting, let's use the e-letter example, $150 a month into a portfolio over, let's just make it simple, over a 10-month period, each position is going to be worth 10% of your portfolio. However, when you get into the case where you're maybe three years out, or five years out, I don't know the exact math, somebody can plug it into a calculator, but that position size, actually, I mean, just off the top of my head, since the portfolio, the e-letter has been going on for like two and a half years, uh, I think I did the calculation myself, and it ended up being somewhere between like the one and a half to three percent range um, of the of the portfolio size right now. So... Again, look at it. The first 10 months, each position was making up 10% of the portfolio. Add a couple years down the line, and now it's only making up 2%, 3%, 5%, whatever that number is. So what you're starting to see is that when you're adding diversification in the beginning, and I don't know, I don't want to say like in a sense it's easier to diversify, but maybe it, it could be looked at as it's harder to diversify as the years go on because you can trick yourself into thinking you're diversified, but you know, just because you add a, a, a 2% position size, if your position size is all out of whack, then you're not really diversified in the whole 15 to 20 position range that everybody likes to talk about, that the billionaire fund managers like to use, guys like Warren Buffett. So, what you have to understand with dollar cost averaging and portfolio management is that there needs to be basically a lot of thought process into how you're going to make the portfolio balanced over time. So sometimes that might mean, you know, for some investors, that means adding positions multiple months. So let's say, I, I know Dave, you like to do this where you'll save up three months worth or whatever it may be until you see a, a, a good opportunity and then you put money into that. And so it, it's going to take you longer to run into this problem because you're already saving big chunks and then putting those in. So the, this another this is, this is another reason why I like the, to use the dividend fortresses so much is because by selling off three to five positions all at once and moving all that money into one position, one dividend fortress that's not going to have a trailing stop, but that's going to ideally be held forever. It's consolidating the portfolio and adding layers of really proper diversification over the long term. Because again, every single month we're going to be adding to the, to the portfolio, but that amount's going to be smaller and smaller and smaller. So, the the portfolio is kind of going to tip in a way where now instead of adding huge stones, you're adding little pebbles to the portfolio. So it needs to be balanced already. That relates to the $4,000 question because you're going to want to think strategically about how to split this 4000 and how it's going to relate to 
your dollar cost averaging plan moving forward. So again, maybe the higher the higher your dollar cost averaging number is going to be that's closer to the four thousand, maybe the less you want to split that four thousand up. But again, if if you're doing something like hundred and fifty or two hundred a month, if I were in your shoes, I would probably split that four thousand up pretty substantially, you know, to the point where I can be comfortably diversified for quite some time and again think about it as the the best way I can think about it is like a boulder and a pebble right if you're going to put 4000 all into one position but how much you're adding every month is just this little pebble well then you're not diversified even though you might have 20 positions if you have nine pebbles and one boulder that's not diversified so you might want to split that 4000 up into a couple rocks so that when you add the pebbles you know, you can start building other rocks. I guess in the long run, I maybe should have said that in the beginning because it's much more easier to visualize, but these are the type of things that you have to start to think about. And really, if you want to be serious about managing your portfolio, this is a key aspect, which is why, again, when it comes to the e-leather and the dividend fortresses, I am selling multiple positions at once. Number one, that helps me take some gains off the market. I'm, I'm, putting in trailing stops on a lot of these positions so that I can cover any sort of downside. And then once I'm consolidating and then really wanting a position, because, you know, there's basically two two goals for each of my positions. I'll have a trailing stop position and a dividend fortress position. And the trailing stop position really is just one way for me to kind of accumulate a large enough position to give me like a like a stone instead of a pebble. And so that's really what I'm doing and not looking so much. So for a strategy like that, I'm looking more at trying to get a stock that's maybe more of a discount to its intrinsic value rather than like a stock that looks like it's going to really increase its dividend over a long time. Obviously, you want both for both cases, but sometimes you have to put it higher preference to one or the other. And so that's really the reasoning behind it. And it all ties into this sort of portfolio management of adding dollar cost averaging into diversification. And again, it's all personal because everybody's numbers are different. How much they're going to start with is different and how much they're going to continue with is different. And even timeframes are different. You know, some people are looking to invest for 10 years, some 40. So that does play a part as well. But I think what's important is to understand that diversification does not only mean having 20 different stocks, but it means having that little column, if it's your trade keen now, Ali account or whatever broker you have, that, that column that shows you what your market value is. You know, you need to at least have the, the basic competence to calculate a percentage and see like, okay, you know, or am I at least having 10, 15, or 20 stones instead of like two boulders and, and 18 pebbles. Make sure that, that those percentages are calculated and make sure you can at least sort of understand how that plays out in the future and how you can, you know, you at, with dollar cost averaging, you, you can't just place stones. You have to place a bunch of little pebbles and then convert those into stones later on. And that's just the nature of dollar cost averaging. So it's one reason why I'm very intentional with the e-leather, one reason why 
these dividend fortresses don't come out every month because it's just not literally possible. But, you know, that's why I try to give that guidance because it's what I'm doing myself. And so because I'm so focused into it and I, I put so much attention into this, I'm able to kind of share that at, in real time with the e-leather subscribers. So you can either try to understand it yourself or follow somebody along that's doing that as well. And I know all the fund managers, they, they, they do that to an extent. And a lot of fund managers, value investors, traders, they're really big into position sizing. But as far as combining that with dollar cost averaging, I don't think that they really have to deal with it as much as the average Joe investor. And so really try to understand it at least. And hopefully that answers Jameson's question. I'm sure it did. That was very, that was very complete. Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Okay, so Diane has a question. She says, I recently visited with my online broker and he asked me why I did not purchase ETF funds instead of mutual funds. He advised me that the fees are less with ETFs than with mutual funds, which they can be, but you also have to check the bid-ask spread as well as, as well besides the other fees. So here's my question. Can you check the intrinsic value of an ETF like you can a stock? In a simple answer, no, you can't. And the reason why you can't check an intrinsic value on an ETF is because an ETF is made up of a basket of stocks. It can be anywhere from 10 to 1,000. It just really kind of depends on what kind of sector or factors that the ETF is trying to mimic or create a basket so you can invest in gold without actually having to buy gold. You can buy all kinds of gold stocks that would be rolled into an ETF that would focus solely on that, or they can focus solely on oil, or they can focus solely on tech. It really kind of depends. Uh, ETFs, I think, are a better vehicle to invest in the mutual funds for that very reason. With the fees that you're talking about, the fees on mutual funds can be extraordinarily high. Uh, you can have a front-loaded fee, you can have a back-loaded fee, and by what what I mean by those is they will charge you a fee to get into the fund or to get out of the fund, depending on what the rules are with that particular fund, and in addition to that, they'll charge you management fees as well as other fees throughout the course of the year. So if, let's say, the mutual fund makes 5%, but they're skimming off 6% based on the, their fee structure, then you're actually losing money off of the account. And so that's why mutual funds have really taken a beating the last few years because the fees are so extraordinarily high. And when you're trying to beat the market in, you know, the market's coming in at around 9%. When we're talking about the market, we're always referring to the S&P 500. That's kind of the, the standard bearer that everybody compares what they're, when they say they're trying to beat something. When Andrew talks about his e-letter is beating the, the market, he's talking about the S&P 500. So when we're talking about that, you know, so, you know, the standard return over the last 50 years is, I think, around 9%. And so if the mutual fund has taken off 6%, 
that means you're only making three percent, and that's on a good year, and so or an average year, and you know that's just that's just not going to cut it. I mean, you, not that you could put it in a bank, but <laughs> you might as well put it in a bank. I mean, so I guess you know the long-winded answer for what you're talking about intrinsic value is really a way of finding a specific value of a specific stock. So when you try to lump them all together, like, you know, if you had 50 tech stocks, there's just no way that you could figure out the intrinsic value of the ETF. You could go stock by stock by stock by stock if you wanted to try to do that, but that would just be so incredibly cumbersome. That would really kind of defeat the purpose of what you're trying to do. You know, the ETFs, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a huge follower of ETFs, so I don't know the ins and outs of them. Maybe Andrew might have a little more insight into that than I do. But um, I can tell you that you just can't find the intrinsic value of an ETF. So I hope that ans- helps answer your question. Yeah, I think that was uh, really good. I have another question here from Michael. He says, so Michael says, was curious what your thoughts are on income funds. Now I'm from Canada. I started listening to your podcast and been to your website. There's this income fund that's been talked a lot about with the guys I work with. I'm 26 and I'm extremely new when it comes to finances. I have some cash that my bank manager pressured me to put into a mutual fund and I don't really want it in a mutual fund. Now I am so new with finances that I Google general definitions. Unfortunately, this money isn't long term as I plan on putting this money on a down payment for a house. But after that, I want to start investing for my future. I look forward to your response. Take care. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so okay, so this is an interesting question. So there's there's several parts of this I want to take a kind of a stab at. So I guess the first thought was income funds to me are going to be very similar to ETFs. 
And if you're looking to invest in just a general funds, then I think income funds or ETFs are going to be a great place to start. I, again, would steer very wide of mutual funds for the fee structure. Uh, I think that's just, you know, you're just shooting yourself in the foot when you start going down that path. <coughs> I know that there are some mutual funds that are starting to try to mimic ETFs, but why, why wouldn't you just go with an ETF and be done with it? So I guess that would be my thought on that part of it. So he says he's 26 and he's extremely new when it comes to finances. I applaud him for what he's trying to do. I think this is going to be awesome for him in the long run. He's starting out at a great age. I wish I had started when I was 26. I would be a lot better in a lot better position for myself personally. You know, the the thing about the stock market is, you know, the people that have been become so fabulously wealthy, they've done it over a very very long period of time. They didn't start, you know, 26 and were able to retire when they're 29. You know, that just doesn't happen. There are the few rare occasions where it happens, but that is not something that you want to bank on. There's, you know, a whole laundry list of people that have lost everything and more on things, doing things like that. So gambling on, you know, risky stocks, trying to, you know, swing for the fences, so to speak. Andrew and I are more, you know, put it in baseball parlance. We're more singles and doubles hitters with the occasional home run. We prefer to go for the average as opposed to the swing and miss variety of investing. And so, you know, with what Michael's we're the trying We're, we're, we're the, the, gritty, uh, the gritty utility player. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, some of some of my heroes, and I know some of Andrew's heroes, they fell, they fell into that same boat as well. They were more, they were looking for the long-term, the patient. And so, you know, I want to encourage Michael to, you know, the path that he's going down is going to be awesome. This is, he wants to learn this, and this is going to come in very, very handy. So the money that he's going to uh, put aside for his house you know, is obviously going to come out of the house, and he's going to be able to use that to uh, help him buy his house. Now, one thing I do want to recommend, I don't know how the, the laws work in Canada, so this would be something you'd have to check into. But I know here in the United States, if you put it in an IRA, you can take that money out penalty-free, you know, to use to buy a house. So that is one advantage for you in that respect. So... Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of take a look at here was he had a, he had some cash as bank manager pressured him to put in the mutual fund. First of all, we need to slap the bank manager for pressuring you to do that. Never ever do anything that somebody's forcing you to do. Uh, somebody who worked in the bank for a while, I've dealt with that in the past, and that is absolutely unacceptable. And you know the the fact that he did that to you is just disgusting. And you know you it's your money. You should do it where you want to do it. It's your choice. You need to go take that money out of that mutual fund and put it where you want it. Um, you know, provided, you know, if there are any fees, your bank manager, frankly, should cover that because if he's the one that made you do that, that should really be on him. So being new in finances, there's nothing wrong with that. We're all new. I still have to Google stuff. There are things when I'm looking up, you know, articles or when I'm writing, you know, that I'm not really sure on, I'll have to look things up, go back to my textbooks from college and look some of those things up. So, you know, there's just, you know, it's, it's a constant learning. So never, ever feel bad about that. I, I was uh, listening to some transcripts of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting earlier this week, and uh, they talked about um Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger being, you know, perpetual learning machines. And keep in mind, these guys are, you know, I think Charlie Munger's over 90 and, and Charlie, uh, Warren Buffett's pushing 90. So the fact that they are still learning and as accomplished and, you know, skillful as they are, I think that's incredible. So the other part of this, I guess I would say, is, you know, as you start to put money away to buy the house, one of the things that you're probably going to find is 
that you may find that the money that you're making on this may help you make more money to invest in buying your house. And so I would encourage you to you know, get that money in that income fund or the ETF that you could use to help you start investing and just start being patient. Start listening to our podcast. Read the, the blogs that Andrew and I both write. There's lots of great resources out there to help you learn, Michael. And, you know, you, you've come to the right place and we're here to help you. So if you have any other questions in the future, don't ever hesitate to ask us. And, you know, we, that's what we're here is we're, we want to help. We want to help people learn how to do this. It can be a scary, overwhelming thing to look at and to try to do, but it's really not. You know, if you just start, you know, building brick by brick, like Andrew likes to say, or kind of building on your foundation and just kind of build up your knowledge, you're going to you know, be impressed by how quickly you're going to learn this stuff. It's not rocket science. It's rocket science. It's just a new language, and you just have to learn how the, the lingo works and how the technology works. So, But you could do it. You're smart enough to do it. I have no confidence, no, no doubt about that. So that's my thought on that. Yeah, I would just say, too, to kind of piggyback on what Dave said, it's really important to be learning and and start investing for the future as you will be doing. I would just caution putting money into any sort of investment that you're going to put on a down payment. If it's if if you admitted that it's not going to be long term, I would really be wary of putting that into the market at all because a bear market could happen at any time. I think going into some sort of income fund could be a nice way to start and it's definitely a great way to get your feet wet and to start really in the journey in the long scheme of things you know something like money for a down payment on the house compared to all the potential money you'll be putting them into the market in the future is going to be minimal compared to the grand scheme of things but i would be careful about putting money if it's gonna if you're not gonna keep it in the market for a long time I'm going to have Andrew answer the next question. We have a great question here from Amy. I thought I would share the biggest frustration I've encountered while beginning to invest. I'm 18 and just finished my first year of university and live in Saskatchewan, Canada. We have a lot of Canadian listeners, I've noticed. I just started to become interested in investing and began listening to your podcast a few weeks ago. I haven't invested yet because I find it difficult to get good advice on investing in the Canadian stock market. I am unsure if I should stick with only the Toronto Stock Exchange or dip into the New York Stock Exchange as well. I found your book uh, very helpful and truly appreciate it being a, a beginner format for young people like myself. Keep doing what you're doing. All right, Andrew, what are your thoughts? So it's really depending on – I'm not a tax expert, obviously, and there are implications from a U.S. side trying to invest in the Toronto Stock Exchange. I'm assuming it goes the other way, too. Uh, all I'll say, and as far as that goes, have gotten feedback from uh, an e-letter subscriber who said that because of the crossover between the the borders, and I think this also depends on which broker you choose. But some of you know one of the brokers was not able to establish a drip pro a drip program for a couple of the smaller market cap stocks because they're for whatever reason, if, if they're too small or, or whatever they may be. I mean, personally, I've had no problem putting drip in any U.S., you know, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. But for whatever reason, that wasn't able to happen on, on a couple of the positions from that were recommended in the e-letter. So I think that does play a part. 
taxes will obviously play a part too. I don't know what the retirement accounts are like there. Something like a a Roth IRA or even a regular IRA here in the United States takes away the negative effects of long-term capital gains tax and short-term capital gains tax. If Canadians retirement accounts do the same thing, that that could be something that's beneficial, but you'll want to see if, if that applies to U.S. stocks as well. I think what's the biggest thing is to understand the strategy behind it and, and pretty much everything that Dave and I talk about on the podcast about understanding how to at least get a basic sense of what a company's annual report means, what their financial data means, and what kind of mindset you need to have to succeed in the market. I think that's of a much greater importance than, you know, figuring out what stocks you should buy. It's it's the what it's the why, it's the how and not so much the what. So I see no problem with if somebody f- sees that okay, the Canadian stock market I live here in Canada and, and there's maybe more opportunities in, in the Toronto Stock Exchange or maybe I'm being taxed too heavily on the New York Stock Exchange. I see no problem with somebody taking those principles and those strategies and applying them to their own stock market, their own country, and really seeing success from that. I think that can very well happen and I I just caution you know, giving like a straight up answer like, oh, you know, just invest in the U.S. because just because it works personally for me doesn't mean it will work for you as well. I think just, you know, st- stick with it. Keep keep listening to the podcast. Try to really get the the big strategy things down and, and apply that to your own investing actions and investing buys and sells that you end up doing and Regardless of whether you end up in the Toronto Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange, I think you can find success either way as long as you focus on the fundamentals, the dollar cost averaging, the diversification, the long-term holding periods, and buying stocks at a discount to intrinsic value. If any of those concepts or as a whole just seem too overwhelming, maybe you're just better off in an index fund. And I think as a young person, there's so much opportunity and it really depends on how much you want to dig into the nitty gritty. But obviously, obviously I believe in it because I'm living it and I believe there's just plenty of opportunity. And at 18, I mean, that, that extra almost decade of compounding interest that can really accumulate is, is even farther substantial than anything I could accumulate. I mean, Maybe just try to remember me one time you want to pick me up on your private jet. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be awesome. That was great advice. All right. So moving on to the last set of questions. Uh, the last set of questions was from a mutual reader of Andrew and I's blog. And he asked some great questions. 
And it's gonna. What we're gonna do is we're gonna talk a little bit about Andrew's service. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Andrew's stuff. I think it's very, very helpful. I know Andrew, you know, uses his tool as well. I find it very useful. So I thought we thought we would go over these questions a little bit on the air because they they kind of hit some of the things that we talk about, and I thought that would be beneficial to some other people. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the questions, and then Andrew will answer them for us. So I've been receiving your emails and have heard a couple of the podcasts that you guys are doing with Dave. For context, I'm a retiree age 62, having lost a job in a disrupted quote-unquote industry a couple years ago. I have taken over management of my retirement funds. I am looking to quote-unquote actively invest about half of them. I would like to generate 8 to 12% a year using a variety of strategies. I've been reading Ben Reynolds' newsletters, who we're big fans of as well. And on the stock side, I've gone over mainly to dividend stocks for the reasons you've discussed in some of your podcasts. So, some of the questions that we wanted to go over. So, first question for Andrew, is your spreadsheet evergreen, i.e. not likely to change or be updated since it relies on common business metrics? Yes. And I'll try to answer these rapid fire because there's, there's a couple of them in here. So, yes, it is evergreen. There are there, There's a general overview of things that are going to be consistent, things like assets, debt, cash, revenue, earnings, that's always going to be fundamental part of business metrics. And so that's always going to really be the core foundation of the spreadsheet. But I have updated it in the past and I most likely will update it in the future. There's always little discrepancies and little intricacies behind the numbers that need to be updated and it, and it can evolve over time. I mean, Warren Buffett evolved his approach from a very cigar butt method to something more of buying a wonderful business at a fair price instead of a fair business at a wonderful price. So those things can evolve and, you know, sometimes little situations need to be accounted for. Like one of the, one of the things I saw the other day was a negative net. What was it? It was negative cash at the end of the year which, you know, I've been researching companies spanning all the way back to the, like, 19... Would the spreadsheet be a learning tool in that I would gain experience in evaluating a company based on its fundamentals as disclosed in reporting? Yes, 100%. I mean, you learn by doing, and they say that when it comes to learning, I think the the greatest... There's some study, but there's a percentage of how much information is retained by the human brain, and it's something maybe above 50% if you're teaching, and it's like something less than that if you're doing, and then if you're watching it on video, it's less, listening to it on audio is less, and then something like, I don't know, reading it is even less. So I think a big way that I was personally able to find mastery was from plugging numbers in myself and, and really starting to see that, oh, okay, like once you do a couple of these, you start to see, wow, this business is actually pretty bad compared to this group of businesses over there. Why are people putting money into the, this terrible business? And and you start to really see the, the world of the stock market in a different way. And I don't think you really gain that kind of mastery unless you're doing it yourself. All right. So, number three, could any stock slash company be assessed using this spreadsheet? Would it work for MLPs or REITs? Yes. Any stock or company that files a 10K annual report with the SEC 
Um, technically, you could do it with international stocks as well, as long as they're providing the same financial metrics that companies here in the States are, and that's mainly revenue, earnings, you know, EPS, dividends, and things like liabilities, assets, shareholders' equity, and then cash at end of year. It's it's really comes down to that. As long as you have that information, you can use a spreadsheet to analyze your heart away. Cool. All right. If there were ever an update of the spreadsheet, would there be a charge for that? No. Okay. Is it possible for company data to be imported in an automated fashion? Uh, fashion? I would expect it to be manual. Find the info on the filing and plug it in. Yeah, I don't have an automated feature as of now, so it's all manual. Okay. That's no problem. If the entire point, well, it's just part of the learning, too, because you have to look up the data and then enter it in. So that's I find that useful for me personally. Uh, is the entire portfolio to date available upon subscription, including closed positions? Yes. So he's talking about the e-leather portfolio, and yes, um, you get a complete archive of the back issues of every issue. It's been two and a half years now worth of monthly issues that have been um, sent down so you can kind of see which which stocks were bought when they were bought which ones were sold and really just kind of get a, a basic overlook of of the whole life of the e-leather all right folks well that's going to do it for us tonight Hope you enjoyed our different format. We had a lot of fun answering these questions. They were some fantastic questions. We encourage you guys to continue to send us questions. We'd be happy to answer them on the air. We'd have we'd love to have more people on the air and actually talk to you guys. That would be even more fun for us. And remember, that's what we're here for. We're here to help you guys learn. We're here to help you learn to invest with a margin of safety, the emphasis on the safety part. And we want you to have fun while you're doing this. That's you know why we're all here. So learn a little something and have a little entertainment. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. So we will see you guys next week, and you guys have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.